growing in God's Word, and learning how to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Man, I want to pull up the cover, pull down the shades, and just disappear from the earth. I don't want to see anybody. I don't want to do anything. I don't want to think about anything. Depression. It's a real thing. Millions of people suffer from some form of depression. One of the major contributors to depression can be our circumstances. Life events can have a profound effect on our emotional state. What about followers of Jesus? Are we immune? If not, is it possible to survive depression? It can be even worse for followers of Jesus because we're like, well, I, I'm, a, I'm a Christian. I, I shouldn't feel this way. There must really be something wrong with me. Feeling even more depressed, thinking that somehow because they're Christian, they shouldn't be going through this. Hello and welcome to Crosswalk. We're in the middle of our series entitled Survivor, where we're taking a look at some of the obstacles and trials that life can bring, and looking to God's Word to see how we can have victory over them. As Pastor Clay has explained in this series, God's idea of surviving is actually thriving. God wants us to have victory over the obstacles and trials that we sometimes face in life. A breakup, problem at work feeling like you're being picked on at school, all different kinds of things have to do with the circumstances or the events in your life that can affect you emotionally. Today, Pastor Clay is taking us to Psalm 42, where we will discover the prescription for overcoming depression when adversity comes into our lives. Thanks for being with us. Let's get started. We are in a a series called Survivor, and we've spent a number of weeks. We actually started uh, Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday. We started with the the subject of surviving death, uh, looking at God's Word and how do you survive death, which is a really important uh, area to start with, and that's why we did on that particular day on Resurrection Sunday. And we've gone through and looked at several different subject matters on surviving. We spent the last several weeks on surviving marital conflict, but today we're moving on to something else, depression, depression, surviving depression. The truth is, it's real. People suffer from depression. It's a real thing. We get down in the dumps. We we feel like maybe God has abandoned us or or we we can't find him anywhere. Things haven't turned out the way we certainly thought that they would. And we can find ourselves emotionally uh, affected by those events, those things that happen in our life. I was reading an article in USA Today about a survey that was done 20 years. The survey was done 20 years ago. But in this article in USA Today, it talked about the impact that uh, depression has even in our economic uh, uh, prosperity in America and, and, and on the workforce. And in the, in the survey that I was reading about in the article, it said that fi- they uh, surveyed 406 companies that reported, 56% of them reported that uh, employees uh, suffering from depression, emotional uh, depression, uh, has a, uh, a significant impact on the economic viability of that company and on their, on their productivity and that sort of thing. 40% of those surveyed, of the company surveyed, said that it was a moderate to large problem in their company. And, and, and of course, uh, we, 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 we don't have to go far now. We, we have depression right at our fingertips now. 
in a 2016 online article in Psychology Today, it talked about the huge impact that Facebook is having on people's emotional stability. In the article, it said this, more than one billion people log on into Facebook every day. Of course, it would seem logical to assume that people use Facebook because it somehow enhances their lives. But oddly, research suggests the opposite. Studies show Facebook use is associated with lower life satisfaction. The article went on then to uh, quote a, uh, uh, a survey, an article in Computers and Human Behavior, and said most people aren't using social media to be social. Only about 9% of Facebook's users' activities involve communicating with others. Instead, most users consume random pieces of content. That's scrolling, y'all. Random pieces of content. And researchers found that passively consuming information isn't fulfilling or satisfying. Study participants experienced a sharp decline in their moods after scrolling through Facebook. Interestingly, they didn't experience the same emotional decline when they surfed the internet. The toll on mental health was unique to Facebook. And, and then the article cited one of the causes for uh, depression as a result of Facebook is something known as Facebook envy. And it went on to say that a study in 2016 issue of Current Opinion in Psychology found that envying your friends on Facebook leads to depression. Scrolling through happy status updates, exciting vacation photos, they Photoshop their faces in there, that beach on Maui. No. Scrolling through happy status updates, exciting vacation photos, and beautiful family moments led participants to compare their lives to compare their lives with those of their Facebook friends. Can any, would any of you admit to saying, I've done that. I, I, that? That has happened in my life. Those social comparisons led people to assume their Facebook friends had better lives. And those feelings of envy increased their chances of developing depression. The article goes on and it says, so why on earth do people keep coming back for more if Facebook causes them to be sad? Researchers say it stems from a psychological term called effective forecasting. Studies confirm that people predict in their own mind, they predict that Facebook is going to make them feel better. They assume, albeit incorrectly, that 20 minutes of Facebook activity will boost their mood. They don't recognize that it's actually robbing them of joy. And uh, I know it's a lot, but the article then concludes with this. It says, so the cycle continues. Someone assumes Facebook will give a momentary break from stress or a quick opportunity to check in with friends. But ultimately, that individual isn't likely to communicate with friends, nor is the Facebook visit likely to boost his or her mood. Yet there's a good chance the person will fail to recognize the personal toll being taken, and he or she will keep going back for more. So maybe I should change the, the title of this message to Surviving Facebook. But the point is, is that depression 
or the possibility for depression can come from a lot of different directions. Now, I, I want to clarify here that when I talk about t- depression, I am referring primarily to what I would call um, uh, circumstantial depression. Circumstantial or, or, or uh, events that you're going through in your life. Uh, a breakup, um, a problem at, at work. Uh, you, you, can, you can run the gamut. Feeling like you're being picked on at school. Uh, all different kinds of things that have to do with the circumstances or the events in your life that can affect you emotionally. You understand what I'm saying? That's the predominant type of depression that I am referring to here when I say this. Now, there are other types or reasons for depression. Uh, chemical imbalances or, or other biological or neurological uh, uh, issues that may need to be treated with medication or different types of therapy. I'm certainly not advocating against those. But what I am saying is that the prescription, what I'm calling a prescription that we're going to look at today for dealing with uh, depression can help in any type of depression, and it absolutely will cure what is the predominant reason for depression, circumstantial depression, okay? Psalm 42 is where we're going to be this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, uh, whether it be hard copy, digital copy, open it, please. We'll have it up here on the screen as well. I'm going to give you, time permitting, what I hope to do is uh, four parts from this prescription for dealing with depression. I think it's probably safe to say that everybody at some point or another may have feelings of, of, uh, of downness or uh, depression, it, it may vary in its intensity or its severity, but it's something that people deal with in their lives. And let me say this, it can be even worse for followers of Jesus because, because we're like, well, I, I'm, a, I'm a Christian. I, I shouldn't feel this way. There must really be something wrong with me. And, and the, a person can end up feeling even more depressed as a result of thinking that somehow because they're Christian, they shouldn't be going through this. But the truth is, people can go through things like this, and it can cause their, it can cause their lives to, be, to look like anything but what the Bible describes that we can have, a life of contentment and, and joy and, and peace. So, let's look at a prescription, shall we? Let's start with this one uh, this morning, and I'll read the text as we go. But to survive depression, here's, here's, here's the first part of the prescription. You have to long for God's satisfying presence. I'll get into Psalm 42. I'll talk about it in just a second. But, but part one of the prescription, you struggle with depression sometime in your life or maybe a lot of times in your life, whatever. Here's what you got to do. You have to long for God's satisfying presence. Psalm 42, I'm going to read, uh, start just verses one through three this morning, and then we'll, we'll move on in a minute, okay? As the deer pants for the water brooks, So my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? I I should say as we start uh, this morning that most biblical scholars believe that Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 
were one psalm at one time. They were either one psalm or they were written by the same person at roughly the same time dealing with the same life circumstance. You could kind of think of Psalm 43 as kind of a, uh, a wrap-up rehash of Psalm 42. If you, you, you can read it, Psalm 43 is real short, I think about five verses, and you can read that. But you can kind of think of it as a, as a rehash wrap-up of Psalm 42. In Psalm 42, we don't know who the writer is. Some people believe that it was King David. He obviously wrote most of the Psalms, and it may have been him, but the truth is we don't know. And furthermore, it really doesn't matter in this case because what we do know is that this this writer of this Psalm is at a time in his life that has caused great uh, depression in his life, feelings of, of darkness and aloneness, and, and he, he's, he's just, he's depressed. He's depressed. He says there in, in, in verse 3, he says, my tears have been my food day and night. There's some people in this room or listening to this message who know exactly what he means by that statement, that he is, he is caught in this, in this vortex of, of of circumstances that are that is pulling him down into this funk in his life, and, and he says, it's, "I just, I just, I just weep. I just cry. I just all the time. My tears have been my food." I think there's probably people that can relate to that. The psalmist um, has been taken from Jerusalem, uh, or he's either had to, he, or he's had to flee Jerusalem. Either he's been carried off in captivity, or he's had to flee Jerusalem. Which means that he is, he's, he's lost his home. If he's, had to, if he's had to run out, if he's been forced out, if he's been whatever, if he's lost his home, then he's probably lost his family as well. He's lost the temple, which he makes reference to on several occasions, which was a very important part of his life. If he was a musician in the temple, as some scholars believe that he was, then he's also lost his job. This, this calamity has come crashing into his life and it has robbed him of his joy, of his contentment, of his happiness, of his, of his purpose. It's robbed him of everything. And he is feeling the effects of this on his life. He's hurting. And if there's one thing I know about people when they are hurting, they want relief. I don't, I don't want to stay like this. I don't want to stay. I don't want to live in this pain that's continually in my life. I want relief. I have had the misfortune, on, actually on a couple of occasions now, to be uh, struck with uh, kidney stones. I really thought some of y'all would say, oh, be sympathetic for me on that. The first time it happened, I was laying in bed asleep at night, and all of a sudden I just start getting this just gnawing pain and kind of in my back, lower kind of area. And, and it's not like, mm-mm-mm-mm-mm, because... That part would at least be, ah. No, it's like, ah, that just, just continues and continues, and it's building and it's building. And so the first time it happened is in the middle of the night, and I woke Cindy up. And I said, baby, something's wrong. Something is wrong. <laughs> and so I told her, I told her what I was feeling, and she instantly diagnosed it. You got a kidney stone. Because un- unfortunately, uh, Cindy has suffered with kidney stones a couple different occasions as well. So she rushed me to the emergency room. Uh, we go in there, and I know you're going to find this hard to believe, but they put me in this place called 
the waiting room. And I'm like, did I not make myself clear about how much pain I am in here? This is, this is excruciating. And they put you in these chairs that I think must have been designed by some torture guy or something. Because there's absolutely no way to get comfortable in those waiting room uh, chairs. And I can remember this just this awful, awful pain. And I can remember looking down at the floor and thinking, oh, if I, if I just, if I, if I just laid in that floor, maybe, maybe that somehow would give me some bit of relief. I can remember this dialogue in my head between me and myself. And I'm thinking if I, if I could just lay in that floor, maybe that would give me some relief. And then at the same time I was saying to myself, I wonder how many diseases are on that floor down there. I could not believe that they thought a gunshot wound was more important than my kidney stone pain. Someone's having a heart attack. Oh, I've got kidney stones, right? It's that we want relief, man. We, we just, I don't, I don't want to stay in this state. I want to stay like that. That's, that's, that's how it can be with, with this depression that we experience in our life. This emotional thing that I, I need relief from this. That's how this guy felt in this moment. All right. But, and this is a very important but, here's what I want you to see. He makes a determination to take action. I want you to understand that. This is very important. He makes, I want to say it again, he makes a determination to take action. Like, you can think of it like a, like a champion prize fighter who's been knocked to the canvas by his opponent. Rather than, than stay there down for the count, he makes a determination that he's going to get up and he's going to, he's going to defeat this thing, or better yet, he's going to place in a position for God to defeat this thing in his life. You see, he makes a determination to take action. Unfortunately, when people suffer from depression, they don't want to, oftentimes they don't want to do anything. Maybe they don't want to do anything. Take action. Man, I want to pull up the cover, pull down the shades and just just disappear from the earth. I don't want to see anybody. I don't want to do anything. I don't want to think about anything. That's what depression will do. But I'm telling you, somebody's got to take, make a determination to take some action if they want to, because I think this, I think this writer knows if he doesn't take action, he may never get out of this because of his circumstance and what he's going through. He may have to live in the state. By the way, I should stop here. I should have said this earlier, but can I just stop here and just say, that we should not wait until there's a calamity in our lives to want to draw near to God, okay? To, 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 to desire uh, God's presence. We shouldn't wait until calamity strikes in our life, until our circumstances are terrible that we desire uh, to do that. I can remember, I think I, I, think I give this illustration in my uh, New York Times non-best-selling book where I, I, I talk about years ago, I was walking through the living room one day, and um, I don't know what was even in there, I, but as long as the living TV was on, and there was a soap opera uh, on. And uh, what struck me about the soap opera, what caused me to, to stop and, and hear what it said was because all the family, the, like the soap opera family, was gathered into the dining room together, and there was some sort of crisis going on. I know, right? It's hard to believe a soap opera family is in, in crisis. But... Uh, the whole family's gathered in there, sitting at the table, and there's food at the table, and the, like the patriarch of the, of the family says, I think we should pray. And that's when I, I'm like, whoa. He said, I think we should pray. And he said this, if ever we need it, God, it's now. No, no. 
No, we don't, we don't need God just when the calamity comes. We need God all the time. We need to seek his face, seek his presence. We need to draw near to him. We need to desire to be in God's presence in this moment in our lives. But certainly when calamity does come, when tragedy occurs, when circumstances are such that they are, listen to me, here's what you've got to do. You have to get desperate for God. That's what you've got to do. You've got to get desperate for God. You have to say, man, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what all this is about. I know, but I have to get up off the mat. I have to seek God out. I have to experience God in my life right now. Because like, as the psalmist says, like a, like a deer panting for water, maybe exhausted from running from a predator, someone hunting him, dry and thirsty and, and just absolutely worn out and at its end. Like that deer that would seek that cold drink of water. The psalmist says, that's what I've got to do right now in my life. I've got to seek God that way. I've got to seek God the way that that deer would pant after that cool, clear, cold drink of water. That's what you and I have to do, ladies and gentlemen. You have to seek after God's presence in your life. This guy needs to know God. Now listen to me. He already knows God. You may already know God. You may know intellectually that God is not a cold, distant God that's far off. You may know theologically that that he's there for you, but it doesn't feel that way in that moment. For a person in the midst of, of depression, God feels a million miles away. And so he knows he has to take action. He has to get desperate for God. Now, you might ask, for, move on, but you might ask, okay, well, how, how, do, I, how do I do that? How do I, how do I draw near to God? What is that? Well, in the same way that if you were on a prescription medication, you would, you would have to stop at certain times of the day and take that medication. Listen to me. In the same way, you have to set aside certain times in the day, whatever you decide. But you have to set that time aside and you have to say, I, I, I've got to go and get in God's presence. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't even know if I'm going to hear from him, not hear from him. I don't know. But I know I have to desperately seek God right now in my life. This is, this is killing me. I've got to seek God in my life. That, that's the first part of the scripture. You have to do that. And can I tell you that by and large, I would say it's safe to assume here, nobody's going to make you do that. You have to make a determination to take action when you're feeling this way. And I know your feelings are saying, no, don't, no, just, just disappear. And that's how you feel. I understand that. And I would be the first one to say that feelings are a very dangerous thing to, to base your life on. But they're real. They're how the person feels in that moment. And if they want to have victory in their life, they have to desperately seek God's satisfying presence. Okay, second part of the prescription this morning looks like this. To survive depression, you have to remember God's mighty hand. You're seeking his presence. Now here's what you gotta do. You gotta, you gotta put your mind to work remembering God's mighty hand. Let me read verses four through six. Y'all still with me? Listen to me now. These things, watch this, these things I remember. These things I remember and I pour out my soul within me. For I used, I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God. Oh, I, I remember when I, when I was the worship leader. I remember when I, when I went up into the, to the house of God and led the procession to go up and worship. With the voice, with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude Keeping festival? Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the 
help of his presence. Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, here it is again, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mizar. He's not in Jerusalem anymore. He's not there at the temple. He can't lead the procession up in worship anymore. That great, wonderful, joyful, exciting experience that he had that's been taken away from him. But he can remember. He can remember. And I don't, and I don't mean just remember to make you more depressed. You know what I'm saying? Oh, I remember how it used to be. I, I remember how good I used to have it. I, I remember that can, that can happen, right? Reflecting on the good old days. That's not what this prescription is about. It's about God and how God was working and moving and what God has done in the past and what God can do in your, in your future. That's what he's saying. He says, God, I, this is where I am. This is what I feel. This is what I'm experiencing. I've been carried off by my enemies and, and I'm not even in Jerusalem anymore. I've been taken from my home. Take, all these things have been taken away from me. But they can't take my memories. And God, I will, I will use that. I will remember. That's what you guys have to do. You have to remember God's mighty hand. You have to remember how big God is in the moments of your life. I've shared this with some of you before. Some of you have heard these stories before. But when I was a kid, when I was six or seven years old, I grew up on a dairy farm. My dad was a dairyman. And when I was six or seven years old, uh, we got a call one night from a neighbor who uh, had seen some lights in one of our pastures. And my dad knew there was nobody supposed to be in the pastures at that time of night, so that could only mean one thing, cattle rustlers. It's not just an Old West thing. It, it, it still happens uh, today. So my dad uh, goes into his office, brings out his Ruger forty-four Magnum semi-automatic rifle. It's tucked up under his arm. And he goes out the door and uh, gets in his truck and leaves. About, I don't know, 15 20 minutes later from the house. It was just true, but I get to remember, I was six, seven years old, I still remember this. <laughs> About 20 minutes later, here comes my dad driving back with two guys sitting in the back of his truck, just wow. sitting in that back of the truck. And you know what I thought? You know what I thought? My dad is bad. <laughs> I don't, a few months, maybe a year later, there's this pounding at our door. It's like 2, 2.30 in the morning. There's this pounding at, at our door. My dad opens the door, and this woman is absolutely just bonkers. She, just, she is bleeding. She's covered in blood. She's bleeding. She's screaming. And as she's screaming, and as my dad opens the door, she, she's screaming and passing out right into his arms as he opens the door. And he and, he, he and my mom bring her into the house and... Uh, and she, periodically, she's waking up. She'll wake up and then pass back out, wake up and pass back out. But when she would wake up, she would, she's just screaming something like, he's going to kill me. He's going to get me. He's after me. He's going to kill me. And she'd pass back out again. Let me tell you something. When you're six or seven years old and something like that goes on in your house at 2.30 in the morning, it will freak you out. So while my mom is tending to this woman's wounds, my dad gets up and goes back to his office, and he comes out in a minute with a Ruger 44 Magnum semi-automatic under his arm. And, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I thought, uh-huh, I've seen this one before. My dad is bad. Listen, folks, can I say this to you? Our dad is bad. And by bad, I mean good. <laughs> I mean he's powerful. I mean he's, he's wise. I mean he's loving. I mean he's caring. He's all of those things, and I need to remember that. Not just when I'm sitting in church and singing the song and saying, oh, praise God for all. Yeah, sure, it's wonderful. 
But in the depth of that pain, then to say, I remember. I remember my God. I, I know he may feel distant right now, but I remember what he has done. Listen, again, how do you do that? You go to his word and you read over and over and over again how he has intervened, how he has worked, how he has conquered, how he has empowered, how he has delivered, how he has equipped, how he has provided. Over and over and over again, you do that and you reflect on your own life and the times in your life where God is, has worked and intervened in your life. And I promise you, if you'll stop occasionally and just think back and just like, you'll, you'll be able to say, you know what? I don't know if I realized it at the time, but I can see how God was working there and God's working there and God did that and God helped in that situation. See, we, we got to remember. Okay, third part of the prescription. Here it is. To survive depression, bend God's attentive ear. Talk to him. Talk to him. Let me read it in uh, verses seven uh, through nine. Now listen, listen to what the psalmist says now. Listen to this writer. He's in the middle of this, right? Deep calls to deep. At the sound of your waterfalls, all your breakers, your waves have rolled over me. That's where he is. That's his circumstance. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and his song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. A prayer to, I'm going to talk to him. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forsaken me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Listen, can I tell you something? God is not afraid of your questions. He's not afraid for you. He actually wants you to come to him and say, God, man, this is, this is, this is hurting. This is going on. This is what's happening. Not because he doesn't know, but because but because communication is key to relationship. And so he says here, deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls, all your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. Modern translation, hey God, I'm drowning down here. Could you throw out a rope or something? God's not afraid of that. In fact, he invites it. Now, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that we ought to be arrogant or, or disrespectful uh, to God. I, I wouldn't ever suggest going down that road. I'm just saying to you, it's okay to ask God the why questions. It's okay to pour out your heart and your feelings uh, to him. Now, if you ask the why questions, you have to be ready for the answers because it may not be what you think it is. As a matter of fact, I can pretty much guarantee you it won't be what you think it is. In the book of Job, if you're familiar at all with the story, you know all that he went through and all that he experienced in his life. And, and, he, and he, he questioned God. He did. He went to God. He wanted to know why. And he began to say, I, 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 don't, I haven't done anything. I don't understand. I've not done anything to deserve this. I know I'm not perfect, but I've done nothing to deserve this. I don't understand why this is happening to me. I want to stand before my accuser. I want to know what's going on. And in, 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 in the midst of all that, and then, and then you've got to read the book of Job and how God responds. But in, at, towards the end of the book in Job 42, God says, you have not spoken. He's talking to Job's friends quote unquote friends at that point when God says you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has the text is clear that in all of that Job did not sin so what I'm saying to you is God invites you he wants you to and when 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 you think I I don't I I can't share this with anybody else I I don't God says yes yes you can pour out your heart bend my ear y'all ever 
not every kid does it, but, but a lot of times you'll notice how little kids, two, three, four-year-old kids, when they're trying to say something to you, and if they don't think they're, that they're getting your attention, I mean, they will do some stuff to get your attention. Well, they, sometimes they'll even like, they'll like, like grab your, your cheeks and like put, put their face straight to your face and, and, and say, no, here's what I want to say to you. God invites us to do that. God invites us to a face-to-face encounter, to bend his ear, to talk to him, to pour out our heart to him. Jesus suggested as much in uh, Matthew chapter 11 when he said, then Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry burdens, and I will give you rest. Would you describe a, a, a circumstance or a situation in your life as a heavy burden? I would. And what does he say? Uh, suck it up. No, he says, come, come here, come to me. I'll give you rest. But you have to bend his ear. You have to be willing to go and, and do this. The writer of Hebrews says, let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Why? That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Would you consider a, a, a moment in your life when you're struggling with depression or down or emotional uh, feelings that are not, would you consider that a time of need? I would. And again, I, I, the tendency is in that moment to not talk to God. To not open his word, to not, because I, I just, I don't want to do anything. I don't want to think. I don't want to, a person who's struggling with depression or is in a state of depression, like I said, they just, they just want everything to go away. And so you have to choose to say no, like this guy did. No, I remember God. I remember. I'll remember those things that you did. Okay, one more, real quickly. All, all three of those are critical to the prescription for, for conquering uh, circumstantial depression when it comes into your life. Here's the fourth one. This morning, to survive depression, wait for God's sure deliverance. That's what you got to do, folks. And uh, before I read the text, I'll just go ahead and announce this. This will come as a shock to all of y'all in here. But as human beings, we hate to wait. Right? Let's look at it in verse 10 and 11. As a shattering of my bones... My adversaries revile me. Man, he, he, just, he can feel this, the taunting, the, all that's going on. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? Verse 11, why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. In the midst of all that he is going through and experiencing in his life, he begins to take the prescription. He, he longs for God's satisfying presence. He knows he needs to be with God. He's, he's bending God's ear. He's, he's approaching God. He's doing those things that he needs to do. He's remembering what God has done in the past. He's beginning to, to take that into account. And as he does, something begins to transpire in his life. Something begins to change in his life. Now, his circumstances almost certainly have not changed, but something begins to change in him. He says there in uh, verse 11, he refers to God as the help of my countenance. Do you know what countenance is? It's your face, or it's, it's the look on your face. Uh, a, a person who is happy, a person who is angry, a person who is depressed, it, it shows up on their face. As the old saying goes, it's written all over their face. It's their countenance, right? 
<laughs> and, the, and the writer here says, God is the help of my countenance. He's the one that's going to turn that frown upside down. He's what, listen, he, can, I, can, I just, can I just remind you of this? He, he, he's the great physician, ladies and gentlemen. And he doesn't desire to perform plastic surgery on you that would be some temporary change. God wants to do spiritual surgery on our hearts and our life. Can I say this to you? If you struggle with depression in your life, God wants to give you a faith lift. That's what he wants to do. And he's the one that can. But there has to, I go back to that idea, there has to be a determination. I'm not going to stay down for the count. I'm going to get up. I'm going to seek my God. I'm going to bend his ear. I'm going to remember what he's done. And then I'm going to wait for his deliverance. I'm going to wait for what he does. Now listen to me. You may have to wait for your circumstances to change longer than you want. We always do, right? But I can promise you this, on the authority of God's word, you will not wait one second longer than God knows you need to for God's purposes and plans that may be beyond what we can even fathom in our lives. And you don't have to wait for his spirit to come and bring deliverance to you when circumstances have weighed down on you so much that have brought you to this place where you're so low in your life. He can bring deliverance to you. Even if your circumstances haven't changed, as they hadn't changed for this guy, God can bring you victory in the midst of it. If you're willing to take this prescription and then wait for him to work. And so in the middle of all that, in the middle of taking that prescription, this this writer has this, what I would call, spirit-inspired revelation that leads to this question. And he, and he basically says, why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Modern translation, what is wrong with me? What is wrong? Why, why am I acting? I'm acting like God's not even there. I'm acting like God doesn't care. I'm acting like God doesn't have the power to do something or work in my life. What is wrong with me? I will not do this any longer. I will not allow the enemy to hold me captive in this state that I find myself because of my circumstances, because of what's happened in my life, because of this or because of that. I'm gonna, I know my God is there. I know my God will work. I brought my petitions to him. I'm trusting him in it and I will wait for him to bring deliverance in this situation. And he will. And he does. That's who he is. But you have to hope. And I don't mean a hope like, well, I sure hope things get better for me. No, I'm talking about, we sung about it some this morning, talking about this biblical concept of hope, this assurance that God is there, that God cares, and that God is going to work and move. Victor Frankl was a prisoner of war in a Nazi death camp during World War II. Millions of people were exterminated. It's, it's exterminated. Some of them were, were were left alive as long as they could to, to work as, as slave labor until they died of exhaustion and, and malnutrition, starvation. Victor Frankl survived his ordeal. And he later reflected on that and said this about a prisoner who had lost, who, who lost hope during the course of all that. He said, the prisoner who had lost faith in the future, his future was doomed. He saw it, I have no doubt, time and time and time again. The prisoner that gave up, the prisoner that said, there's no hope, there's no hope. He said they were doomed when they did that. Folks, that's what I'm saying to you. We have to say, God, I, I don't know why this is going on. I don't know why this happened. I don't know why I'm experiencing this. But God, I'm going to choose to believe you. I'm going to choose to trust in you. I'm going to choose to wait for you to work in this situation. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31 says this, Yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. 
They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. Doesn't that sound good? Those who wait for the Lord. 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1. For this reason, I also, the Apostle Paul writing, I also suffer these things, but I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. So that's what we're talking about, folks. We're talking about, about just trusting and waiting for God's sure deliverance, for his hand to move and do what he knows he needs to do when he needs to do it. We all struggle with it at times, right? We can all forget that God is there. We don't hear him, we don't see him, we don't see anything changing. I don't know if you've ever read it or not, but classic uh, Christian novel by John Bunyan entitled Pilgrim's Progress. It's an allegory about the Christian life. And in, I think it's like the seventh part of Christian, that the main character, in this, like the seventh part of Christian's journey, he and his friend, Hope, Hopeful, are captured by the giant despair in this, in this allegory. And he, he beats them ruthlessly and he throws them into prison. And in the book, as Bunyan's describing this, he says that they, that they, they were at a point in their life where they, they even just would wish their life would end. It, it just had come to that point because they were in, in, the, in this despair in their lives. And then Bunyan writes this. He says, as one half amazed and says, why fool? This is Christian talking now. Why fool thus to lie in a stinking dungeon when I may as well walk at liberty? I have a key in my bosom called promise that will, I am persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. And then Christian pulled it out of his bosom and began to try it at the dungeon door, whose bolt, as he turned the key, gave back, and the door flew open wide with ease, and Christian and Hopeful both came out. You understand, in the, in the midst of his despair, it suddenly came to Christian. Why am I living like this when I don't have to? I have within my bosom the key, the key that will unlock any despair that I would find myself in. It's God's promise to be with me and to walk with me through all of this, to never leave me or never forsake me. To say it one more time, the writer said it in Verse 11, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Thanks, Pastor, for that timely reminder of God's loving presence in our lives, even when life is hard. Difficult circumstances can get us focused on how bad we have it, how hard life is. When our focus is there, it's easy to be affected emotionally. The writer of Psalm 42 chose to seek after God, to remember what God has done for him in the past, to pour out his concerns to the Lord, and to trust God for the future. When he did that, he realized that he didn't need to be down about anything, because God was bringing the victory. We're glad you joined us for this week's message on Crosswalk. Pastor Clay is the author of the book, I Get It, Discovering How to Really Live in the Promises of God. My prayer is that God would use it to help some people understand a few things about what it really takes to live in the promises of God. God wants you to live a life of peace and purpose and meaning and hope and fulfillment and contentment. He wants you to live a life without fear and without anxiety. 
Many people at some point in their life feel disconnected with the type of life and faith they read about in the Bible and what their lives look like on a daily basis. What is it that we're missing? What is it that we're not getting? If I'm not really living in the promises of God, why is that? That's what this book explores. I Get It is available online in electronic versions for the Nook and Kindle, as well as paperback from Amazon.com. And ask for it by name at your favorite local bookstore. You can go in bookstores and just say, hey, uh, have you got a book in here uh, entitled I Get It from Lay Stevens? They can order this book out of their catalogs that they get. Get your copy today. Discover the promises of God and the steps you need to take to get it. And join us here each week online for another Crosswalk message. God has invited us to know Him through His Word, the Bible, a perfect record of God's revelation to man and applicable for every area of our lives. And if you're in the Raleigh area, we invite you to be a part of cross-culture worship. We meet at 1030 every Sunday morning at the Leesville Road High School, a mile and a half south of I-540, exit 7. We're a church, but instead of religion, we're about relationships. And instead of rituals, we practice realness. Our desire is to be used by God to show people that a life built on the finished work of Christ on the cross is where they will find what they're searching for. Learn more about us, who we are, what we're about, what we do, and what we believe. Visit us online at crossculture.church. I'm not the water, I'm not the bread, but I know the place where your soul is fed. So hungry and thirsty, come and be blessed. I want to lead you to the cross. I want to lead you to the cross. I want to Cross Culture Church, a new church for people like you. Taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross.